Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to study your word again, and especially for this book, which you've said has a blessing in it when it is read, heard, and kept. And our desire today is to do all three, Lord. And we, we thank you for um, what you're doing in our lives, what you're doing on the earth. We thank you that you are preparing your church, Father, for what is yet to come. But we, we know that our, our lives and our hope are, are anchored in what is true from what has been done and what is certain yet to be at your return. So we, we give you this time together. We pray for the study of the book of Revelation as we continue, that it would um, build your church and strengthen this local community of believers. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, good morning, guys and gals. Um, so I'm going to pick up today, and actually we're going to begin now, the study of the book in the sense of getting into the text just want to, again, um, recognize what a tremendous job Dean has done in uh, introducing it and, and laying a, a foundation that is so important for us to understand the book. And uh, as you guys remember, we are going to be studying it from an amillennial point of view uh, or hermeneutic. Um, the way that we're going to understand it is from an amillennial perspective as opposed to what? Premillennialism? And there are, two, there are two aspects of that even? It's dispensational and historical. And uh, Dean spent a, a lot of time um, teaching us the difference between those two, and especially looking at the most commonly held understanding of the book of Revelation in, in the United States and the church in America today, which would be dispensational premillennialism. And then he also talked uh, briefly about postmillennialism, uh, which is a, uh, uh, a less commonly held uh, understanding today, but it's still held by some. <clears throat> and uh, then we, he, he looked at what we are going to be teaching the perspective from, which is amillennialism, in which we know does not mean no millennium. Uh, it simply means that we believe that the, the millennium is being right, experienced right now, that this is a realized millennium in a sense. And that is currently, it is the church age. The thousand years is a symbolic term describing the church age, as opposed to a literal thousand years. But not only are there three hermeneutics, you could say, and again, let me just emphasize, and Dean did this well, that... What you hold to regarding your eschatology uh, has, um, it bleeds into all of your theology. It bleeds over. So, you know, you've heard the term, well, people say, well, I'm a pan-millennialist. Everything's going to pan out in the end. That's, you know, kind of a common phrase. It's people just say it funny and casually because they don't want to take the time to think it through and, and it's confusing and it might be difficult to understand. So they just... They default to the pan-millennialism. The problem is, is that if you never have a developed eschatology, listen, you will never have a really clear theology, soteriology, which is the study of salvation, ecclesiology, which is the study of the theology of the church, and I could go so far as say Christology, pneumatology, study of the spirit. And so it's, it's, it's unwise to think that it's unnecessary to have your eschatology, which is the study of last things, clearly, uh, at least to whatever degree it can be, worked out in your mind and in your heart. And I have to tell you that I know for, for myself, and I'm sure it's true of Dean and other, uh, the other leaders in our church, it was many, many years of um, studying and struggling with, with these things and rethinking and relearning our, our, 
our understanding of Scripture to land where we have. But it, I have to say that for me, when I began to see amillennialism, which was probably for me about 15, 15 years ago, I knew I wasn't dispensational, but I didn't know why. But it wasn't until I saw amillennialism and understood it theologically that the lights began to go on. But not only is there a hermeneutic in an eschatology, eschatological sense that we study Revelation from, there is also a method of interpretation that needs to be understood. And Dean, again, did an excellent job of teaching what those are. Anybody remember what they are? Futuristic, historic, historicist, preterist, and idealist. which also could be known as, which is not the same as, but similar to recapitulation. Yeah? And a term that Dean introduced that I'd never heard, but now I've begun reading about, iterist. Each of these are methods of interpreting the book of Revelation. Of all of them, the weakest is this one, because it basically is, is chronological. Historic, thank you, Josh. The historicist uh, method of interpretation. Of course, futuristic is predominantly what is believed by the dispensational premillennialists. Everything is future from chapter 4 on in book, the book of Revelation is depicting a future time that really is only found in the last three and a half years of the final seven. So what's the point? And Dean very clearly uh, uh, talked about the weaknesses of that. Preterist believes what? It happened in the past. And usually believe they believe it was prior to the fall of of uh, Jerusalem, uh, 70 A.D., and then this idealist, also known as uh, recapitulationism, not quite the same, but very similar or iterist, is what we are going to be teaching from throughout the book. And the reason that this, in our mind, is the clearest and the, and the, and the strongest way of in interpreting is because it views... The book of Revelation as a series, listen, of recapitulating visions or repeating visions. Rather than it taking it as a simply historical perspective, all in the future, chronological it is not. It is a series of visions that are repeating and describing the same thing from different vantage points with a little bit different emphasis on, on each one. Let's talk about what those seven are. We're going to study them in depth, but let's just get a kind of an overview of them to begin today. And, and, and then we're going to look at the beginning of what is the, the very first one. The first and I'm going to try to draw a diagram. I was trying to figure out how to do it. I'm not sure if I can do it. For the sake of the tape, I'll try to describe it. But it is going to be seven consecutive or repeated visions of essentially the same events, time period, history, which is the history of the church age. When does the church age begin? Okay, true, at Pentecost. But you can also say that it, it begins with the, with the coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ. 
Because he came as the beginning of what? The new creation. The first of these is the message to the seven churches. C-H-U-R-C-H-E. Seven churches. Bad writing. It's the message of the seven churches. And each of these, we see that each of these churches receive a message or an encouragement or a rebuke or an exhortation from the Lord. And they end with a promise to those that overcome. So it's looking forward as well. A promise that will be completely realized when the new heaven and the new earth are established. And so we'll see that as we look at each of these seven messages to each of these churches. The second in the series is the message, the messages to the, it's the seven seals, the vision of the seven seals. Seven seals. Now the amazing and the interesting thing is that each of these begin... They overlap, and we're going to see that they begin, they begin where the other one has ended. And so it's almost as though they're going back to the beginning each time. That's why it's difficult to kind of draw this diagram. The seven seals lead up to the end as well, depicting the fate of those primarily who are not followers of Christ, who will experience the wrath of God. But the redeemed will be sealed, we'll find, and will be able to stand before the Lord. The next is the seven trumpets. And it goes back and it begins again at the beginning. And it's overlapping, in a sense, with the seven seals. And it leads up to, guess what? The end of the world with the end depicted in, in Revelation eleven seventeen, with praise to God. The next is an interlude of, of sorts. It's an interlude. But it is also a vision that John receives. And it introduces the main antagonists to God and to his church. It's found between the seals. Well, it's not found between them, but it takes place between the seals and the trumpets there. And it shows, it's showing the, the, the dragon, depicting the dragon as a representative of, of satanic power. And it, it's, it's showing what is taking place behind the scenes in human history. And it's a powerful text, a powerful vision, and we'll take time and we'll develop it and look at it. The next is the seven bowls. And again, each of these go back to where the other one ends and in a sense goes back to where the other one begins. That's why we call them recapitulating. It's repeating the same thing. You're getting it over and over again from different perspectives. The seven bowls leads, guess where, to the end of the world. And that's depicted in chapter 16 of Revelation. There's an exhortation in this, in this vision to the church to be vigilant and to be faithful. And we see all of the forces of evil gathering to make one last effort to destroy the church. So the exhortation is to God's people to be watchful and loyal. What you see in each of these successive visions, though they do overlap, is that there's an intensity to them. There's an intensity of what is happening. Though they are saying the same thing from a different vantage point, the intensity increases. And there's a different emphasis depending on what is being seen. But it always is showing history leading up to the end.
Then we are given a vision of the final destruction of Babylon. And the harlot. And we see this depicted in the next vision. And then the final is going to be the consummation and the return of Christ. And of course, we read from this in the, when we were studying in Acts, in, in this vision is the vision of Satan being bound. When did that take place? At the cross, at the cross. So you can see even the final vision, the very final vision in the book of Revelation goes all the way back to the cross. And of course, it ends with the return of Christ. So that's where the term recapitulation comes from. And the reason that it's a, it's a stronger interpretation method, I think, is because it maintains that the letters to the churches and the visions of the book of Revelation reflect circumstances that characterize the entire church age from his first coming all the way to his second coming. So if we look at the book of Revelation from this vantage point, seeing that it is seven visions that are overlapping and stating the same reality from different perspectives, it makes the book much easier to understand. And that's how we are, we believe it's the easy, it's the best, and it's the most biblical way to understand the book of, Revela book of Revelation. And that's the perspective we're going to be teaching it from. There's going to be two main divisions in the book that we're going to discover. The first is chapters 1 through 11. And basically that is describing the struggle of the church on the earth during the church age. We're going to see the church persecuted. We're going to see it persecuted, but we're also going to see it protected and ultimately victorious. Of course, because it's protected doesn't mean that it won't suffer. But what it does mean is that it can't be destroyed. It can't be quieted. Right? The gospel can't be stopped. And so this is, this, this is what we are going to be understanding. And this is what we've been teaching from Acts as well, I think, is, is to see this ongoing call of the church to advance the gospel, to reach as many as we can for the Lord Jesus Christ, because of, that's the reason we're living right now. And it's going to be depicted. You're going to see things through the book of Revelation as we study it that you're going to relate to. Oh. I can, re I can see that that's true, that that's happening right now. I can see that's not some future thing that we're waiting to happen. That's actually happening now, and it's happened in the past. And so we're going to find that God's at work through the church and that, in fact, the wrath of God has begun to be poured out. The judgment of God, we'll see how that look, what that looks like through these, these visions. And we're going to see the church has been persecuted, is being persecuted, has been martyred, is being martyred, will be martyred. But the church has survived and has been protected and will be protected through the church age. The second division is going to be found in chapters 12 through 22. And that really is going to give us a clear vision of the unseen spiritual struggle that's going on behind the scenes. So it's like the Lord is going to pull the covers on things. It's exciting. I mean, we know what's happening, but oftentimes we're, we're either unaware of it or we forget. We become blinded to it because life is so demanding and busy. And so once in a while, it's a good thing for us to realize again, hey, listen, there's a spiritual reality going on behind the scenes that my life is, is, is a part of. My life is, is subject to, that I am involved in, even if I don't know it, that I should engage myself in for the Lord. 
And so we're going to see that this is, it, becomes, it becomes clear in chapters 12 through 22. We're going to see that the Lord Jesus is persecuted by the dragon. And we'll see that the, the exposing, this is important, of a counterfeit trinity, of an unholy trinity. One of the things that we'll see through the book of Revelation is, is the, how often there are counterfeits to what is true. There is a counterfeit Christ. There is a counterfeit Father. There is a counterfeit Holy Spirit. There is a counterfeit church. There's a counterfeit trinity. There are counterfeits that are out there right now, even now at work. The spirit of the age has counterfeited the truth that is in Jesus Christ. And so we'll see this depicted and clarified for us so that we're able to identify it as we live our lives now and not be duped by it, not be deceived by the counterfeits. So we'll see Christ being persecuted by the dragon. We're going to see the unholy trinity. We're going to see the counterfeits of Satan himself being a counterfeit of truth. And then we're going to see ultimately, gloriously, the Lord Jesus Christ victorious. He is victorious. He will be victorious. So let's get into the book. Open your Bibles then to Revelation chapter 1. Are there any questions on what I just talked about before we begin? I can get the mic to Doug, Mr. Douglas Proctor, for those of you at home. Well, thanks for that. I think. Wow, man, that voice. <laughs> uh, I'm just wondering if there's any um, major significance to the sequence of, of the uh, <clears throat> visions. In other words... Why that order? Is, uh, there, is there anything that uh, we can learn about that? Uh? I think the significance is that the order God gave them to John. That's about it. I okay. think that's it. Okay. No, but I, I do believe that they are increasing in intensity. Do anyone want to add to it? The, um, from the study that I've been able to ascertain, the seven seals are the things that happen that are common during the inter, interadvental period. Things like war, um, pestilence, uh, and those are common things that happen because of uh, the, the current structure of man's sinfulness. The trumpets are then warnings. They are God's warnings, and they are done so with isolated events where God is saying, trumpet in throughout Scripture has always indicated a warning. The bowls are the actual pouring out on the impenitent those who don't listen to the trumpet. So they do increase, as Rick said. They are what goes on in the world, God's trumpeting, warning, these things are going to happen. I will pour out my wrath. Seven bowls of wrath. Boom. Okay, so there is that that goes on. But if you lay them over the top of each other, they actually, what the trumpets warn will happen, like grass and water and stuff, the bowls actually consummate water, grass, stuff like that. Great. Thank you. Yeah, that's good. That's helpful. Anything else? You guys feel like you got a handle on it? Basic handle on it, what we're going to be doing and how it all fits and how it works? And you know, All right. Dean did a great job of uh, laying the foundation. Let's begin. Let's read verses 1 through 8. We're going to try to get through these eight. I don't know that we will today. I probably won't. But let's look at verses 1 through 8 of chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants. Interesting already. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So we already see that this is something given to Jesus to give to us from the Father. Interesting. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. 
Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy which we're doing. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and everyone will see him even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Wow. Powerful stuff, amazing stuff, beautiful stuff. Let's just give a real quick Real brief overview of the book itself and the sense of authorship, to whom it's written, when it was written, and so on. The author is identified simply as John. Now, there's been debate as to which John. It's not hard to understand that it is the Apostle John. As early as the second century, men like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and Clement identified the author as, as John the Apostle. We believe it is, it is John the Apostle. You would do well to believe that as well. When was it written? It was probably written around 95 AD when John had been exiled to Patmos. You guys are familiar with that story. They couldn't kill him, so they just sent him away to get rid of him. And while he was on that island, it says on, in the Lord's day, uh, he had this vision. Irenaeus notes that on the basis of some earlier sources that John received the revelation toward the end of the reign of Domitian. And Domitian was known as one of the emperors who was the most severe and the most brutal regarding persecution. So it's written with clear sense that there is not only currently persecution happening to those whom John is writing, but also impending persecution. And Domitian, as I said, was one of the worst in terms of how many believers he killed, how many he martyred. Some believe that it was written earlier, but it's problematic because the church of Smyrna may not have even existed until toward the end of the first century. So the fact that Smyrna is, is even mentioned in, the, uh, in the, uh, the first vision to the seven churches probably gives very strong proof that it was written toward the end of the first century by John on the island around 90, 95 AD. To whom was it written? What is its audience? What's the context to whom it's written? And what's the genre of the letter? Of course, it's a, a prophetic genre, apocalyptic, but it's a letter also. It's just a letter from a man to churches, and we have to remember that. It's written to seven churches in Asia Minor, which is today Western Turkey. And persecution has come to them, and more is coming. And so John is wanting to encourage them and strengthen them. But more than it is, John, it's, it's the Lord Jesus himself to the churches, the Father telling him, give this message to the church. And we know that it's not just a message for those seven. We'll talk about this more, but for the church throughout the church age. Rome is, is requiring at this time worship of the emperor. And because of the refusal of believers to worship the emperor, they are being martyred. There is heretical teaching that's taking place at this time already. We know Paul was already combating heresy as he's writing in the 50s and the 60s. This is now some 30 years later. Heretical teaching, compromise has already crept into the church. Paul addresses that, we know, in the book of 1 Corinthians and in other places. It's, it's addressed by, by Jude. It's addressed by Peter. So there's already struggle within the church. 
The passion of the church is, is wavering. James addresses that in his epistles. His epistle, the fervor of the church is, is wavering. And Christians are being tempted to compromise with a pagan society. Does any of that sound familiar? <clears throat> so we see that even it's, it's, so, it's a, so practical. The message of Revelation is so practical and so uh, relevant for us today. So John's vision will encourage the believers to whom he's writing that the Lord Jesus knows their plight and he understands their condition. So it's to be a comfort and an encouragement. And he calls them to stand fast, to stand fast against all temptation, not to fear, and to endure and to persevere. And brothers and sisters, we can't say that enough today to us. Stand fast against temptation. Don't be afraid and persevere. Say that with me. Stand fast, don't be afraid, and persevere. If all we did when we got together in our community house was say those three things to each other, we'd be doing great. And then maybe just talk about each one of them every single week. Stand fast against temptation. How you doing? How you doing? How you doing? When we get to know each other well enough, we'll be honest with each other. And we'll say, I'm not doing so good, man. I fell. I'm struggling with temptation in this area. All right, let's pray for it. Don't be afraid, man. The world, what's going on in the world, don't be afraid. The Lord's in control. He's sovereign, yes? And keep going. Let's endure. It's not too simplistic to say that is the message of the book. It's an encouragement to a suffering church. Because the victory has been secured by the blood of the Lamb and because of the promise that Christ will soon return, there is hope. And when he returns, he's going to destroy all evil. He's going to destroy Satan and all of his agents and all of his minions. And the promise is that we will live in peace in the presence of God forever. So because it's apocalyptic in nature, though it is a letter, a historical letter, the language is apocalyptic, and we'll discover this as we go through it. It's not hard to see this because there's certain characteristics of apocalyptic literature and genre, and it needs to be understood that often it's symbolism. It's not to be taken literally. But it's symbolizing and speaking of something else. And we, that's true throughout the Old Testament and as well the New. And it's clear that John knew apocalyptic literature well, as did all of the apostles. And we'll see again in this book the repeated reference to apocalyptic texts from the Old Testament and primarily Daniel. So we'll be looking at texts from that book as we go through this as well. Over it all, though it is apocalyptic and though it is a letter, it is a gospel testimony. It's a testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a, a witness to the veracity and the truth of the gospel of Christ. So we're going to look today at the first vision, beginning to look at the first vision, which is the message to the seven churches. It begins in chapter 1 and it ends at the end of chapter 3. Verses 1 through 3, though, are a prologue to this letter. They are what John says in, chapter, in verse 1, a revelation, apocalypsis, an unveiling of something that is hidden. And you've heard the example given of uh, when you go to a ceremony in a park and there's a new statue and they've got it covered and everybody's gathered around the stage and the platform and somebody comes up and they pull back the curtain or whatever it is covering that statue in the park, and everybody cheers, that's an apocalypsis. It's an unveiling of something that up to that point had been hidden. And in this case, what is unveiled is the plan of God for the history of the world, and especially for the church. That's the unveiling of God's plan for the history of the world, what will happen throughout the church age, and especially in regards to the church. But it's also an unveiling of the glory of the Son of God and His ultimate triumph 
over all that is evil and all that is contrary to the will of God. So it's an unveiling of, of two things, of the plan of God and of the church. An unveiling of the plan of God. What's contained in this unveiling of the plan of God? The sovereign providence of God. How God is at work on the earth. How we can look at all the things that are going on on the earth today and we can see God's hand is at work, even though we may not understand how and why. But we can see that God is at work. We can believe, at least, if we can't see, we know that God is at work. God is sovereign. And God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. And Revelation describes for us how this is all going to work out and play out. And how it has been at work and been playing out. And then it is the unveiling of the glory of Christ. The beauty of Christ. The power of Christ. The worthiness of Christ. The triumph of Christ. It's powerful. It's beautiful. The language in verse 1 is interesting. It says it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. The question has been asked, does that mean that it's a revelation of the person of Christ only? Or is it a revelation of which Christ is the source? And the answer is, of course, both. It is both a revelation of him, but it is also a revelation of what he has been given and given to the church. John says that he is bearing witness. John is bearing witness. He says, I'm bearing witness to these things. I'm bearing witness to the truth, to the word of God by writing down the revelation that he received. He's bearing witness. And again, we've talked about this through the book of Acts, not to get redundant, but that's the call of the church, is it not? Is to bear witness to the truth, bear witness to the word of God. And everyone who is faithful to God and obedient to the call of God throughout church history has that as their primary calling in life, to bear witness to the truth of God. So we have to ask ourselves, how does my marriage bear witness to this truth? How, do, how, do, how does the training of my children and raising my family bear witness? How does what I do with my spare time bear witness? How does what I do with my finances? How does how my relationships, how does my, 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 my employing, my being an employee, or the way that I employ others, the way that I work with people, how does it bear witness? How does my life? Bear witness to the truth. And finally, John says this, and we talked about it in the beginning, that there's a blessing for those who read and for those who hear, but not only who read and hear, but who keep the words of this book, the words of these revelations. And the reason, he says, is because the time is near. It's hard to live with a sense of urgency, isn't it? You know, it might be good at times to just take time and just calm our hearts and be quiet and still ourselves in our devotions and ask this one simple prayer request of the Lord. Lord, give me a sense of urgency. Give me a sense of urgency in my life. Not, not frightful, not anxious not nervous, not agitated, but a spirit that is, that is not slumbering. It's what Paul and what Peter both called sober, sobriety to my life. Give me a sense of sobriety. Give me a sense of urgency. John says it's important because the time is near. And now in verse 4, he begins to speak to the seven churches, and he greets them. The importance of the number seven, the importance of the number seven will be seen throughout the book of Revelation. It's used 54 times throughout the book of Revelation. 
What does it represent? It's the number of God's sovereign plan of perfect completedness. It's perfect completion. Perfection. Completion. Perfect completion. So we see sevens throughout the book of Revelation emphasizing the the finality, the totality of, of what John is speaking and its completeness and its perfection in the sense of God's overview and plan. So he's speaking to seven churches, but while he's addressing just seven churches at his time throughout Asia Minor, we know they represent the entirety of the church during the gospel age. And they also represent the the things he speaks. They represent the kinds of challenges the church is going to face during the church age. And so we'll see to these seven churches as we get into it here in the next week, there are warnings, there are rebukes, there's encouragement. There's the encouragement for the church, as we said, to stand, to endure, and to witness, continue to witness through this age. He says in verse 4, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. It's the God of grace and peace who is speaking to them through John. Grace and peace are the Siamese twins of God's heart for his people. I don't know if that's politically correct to say anymore. I'm sorry. If, I apologize if it's not. Oh, look, the conjoined twins. Of, okay. Yeah, it's an old term. Sorry. Grace and peace. It's grace and peace. We find Paul writing about saying it continually. Why? Grace sustains. It's the grace of God that sustains and the peace of God that keeps his people. The grace of God sustains and the peace of God keeps his people. It's the grace of God that sustains the church and it's the peace of God that keeps his people. And that's so necessary as we live our lives, especially as we endure conflict. He says also in verse 4, describing the Lord, it is he who is, who was, and who is to come. He who is, who was, and who is to come. He's the Lord of the past, the present, and the future. Him who is to come speaks of of the dynamic unfolding of God's plan through history. And the fact that this is important, that the future resides ultimately in the expectation that God will come. We live with this ongoing expectation, anticipation. There's a, a, Jesus encourages the church to lift up your faces and be watching, to live with a, a watchfulness. So we see that the New Testament writers of themes that, that John is also reiterating of sobriety and, and, and living with this sense of urgency and then also this sense of watchfulness and anticipation of the Lord's return. Living your lives expectant for the return of Christ. And this grace and peace we find comes from seven spirits, the seven spirits who are before his throne. Some say, well, that must be seven angels. No, it's not. It's the Holy Spirit. Again, the word's the number seven. It's the Spirit of God in his fullness. Because the church is the, is the recipient of the fullness of the Spirit's activity and power. The church receives the fullness of the Spirit when he indwells and when he when we are baptized into Christ. Let me read Ephesians 1, 19 to 21. You guys know this well. It's the prayer of Paul in chapter 1 of Ephesians. He says, he, wants, he prays for the church to know what is the immeasurable greatness. Listen to the language. Immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, 
but also in the age to come. The seven spirits. It's, it's from the seven spirits that this encouragement of grace and peace come. It's from the, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He who has been given to us immeasurably, the immeasurable greatness of power that is at work in us who believe. And not only that, this message of grace and peace is from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, he says. In verse 5, he's called the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. What three things are, are included and contained in that description? The first, he's called the faithful witness. Because the Lord Jesus Christ perfectly revealed the salvation of God to a lost world. A faithful witness. He said in John 3.11, Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. John would write in his, in his epistle, what we have handled and seen of the word of life, we declare to you. And that's our calling too, to be faithful witnesses, to speak what we know and to bear witness to what we have seen. You guys getting a message of being a witness? Jesus Christ, the faithful witness and the firstborn of the dead. What does it mean, the firstborn of the dead? We've taught this many times. Jesus conquered death by his resurrection, and now he rules as Lord over both life and death. But here's the cool thing. Because he was the firstborn, the implication is that there will be a secondborn and a thirdborn and a fourthborn and a fifthborn. He's the first of many brothers. Which one are you? You don't have a number yet? He was the firstborn, the firstborn of the dead. And he's called the ruler of the kings of the earth. This grace and peace come from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Psalm 89, 27 says this, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. One writer says this. This is beautiful. Listen. He says, his dominion rests upon love and sacrifice. And so his kingdom is a kingdom of blessing and gentleness. And he is crowned with the crowns of the universe because he was first crowned with the crown of thorns. His first regal title was written upon his cross, and from his cross, his royalty ever flows. So his kingly rule is tied explicitly to his suffering as a servant. His humility led to his exaltation. His weakness led to his supremacy over all. Grace and peace from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And then John goes into this beautiful doxology, and we're going to end with this here. At the end of verse 5, he says, To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Now we're going to see there are going to be many songs throughout the book of Revelation. This is the first of many. 
And he begins with these words, but to him who loves us. Behold the manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called children of God. Paul writes in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from what? The love of God. Paul writes in Romans 5, for if while we were yet sinners, how much more will the Father now give us all things? This theme of the love of God throughout Scripture, and John speaks it here, to him who loves us, to him who loves us. Say that with me. To him who loves us. And freed us from our sins by his blood. And made us a kingdom. Made us a kingdom. So we are the kingdom of God. We are in the kingdom and we are the kingdom. We are the recipients of the kingdom and we are those that further the kingdom. We live under the rule and reign of Christ. And we are priests unto our God. This speaks of our service to God, our, our, our obedience to Christ. And then he says this, To him be glory and dominion forever. And I'm going to close with this, this, this thought here. What we were going to see, and this is a truth regarding all of worship, this is good for worship leaders even to understand, is that worship is a response to the self-revelation of God. As God reveals himself, the result and the absolute response is worship. Worship is a byproduct of seeing God for who he is. And so this doxology is, is simply the response to what has been said previously of the glory of Christ, of the, of the faithfulness of Christ, of the faithful witness of the Lord Jesus Christ, of this grace and peace being given to us from the Father, by the Spirit, through the Son, to the church. And we'll close with that today, and we'll have to pick up next week, and we'll try to finish Chapter 1, if we can, next week. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the book of Revelation. Our desire today is to worship you, Lord. It's to see you and then to speak of you and to sing of you and to declare of you all that's true. We see of you, Lord, through your word. We see you in each other. We see you in the beauty of nature and your creation. We see you in our own lives at work. We behold the goodness and the love of God and the faithfulness of God. We come together today, Lord, with our hearts and our lives full because you're faithful, because you are good and loving and kind. And so as we gather together as the church, we come to declare these truths. Lord, to declare the beauty of Christ and the worthiness of Christ and the amazing glory of the plan of redemption we have been brought into. Be honored among us, Lord. Strengthen your church today in Jesus' name. Amen.